Let's take our Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 20 this morning. Exodus 20, if you've been with us for several weeks, but only for several weeks, you might think that we're in a series in the Ten Commandments. We're actually in a series through the book of Exodus, and we have been in the Ten Commandments for a number of weeks. Um, What we found, you remember, is that the Lord who delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt has brought them to the base of Mount Sinai. It's God's voice audibly speaking from the top of the mountain down to his people. And that first four commandments were instructions. Here's how you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then this second table of the law, those last six commandments, instruct us how to love one another. Uh, as we would want, our, uh, want to be loved by others. So uh, you also recognize that behind each of these commandments, there's a heart attitude that goes a little more deeply. And each time we're confronted, not just simply with what uh, to avoid, but really what heart attitude should be treasured. And then beyond that, uh, what it looks like to live positively. So don't murder means you also watch out for hate and bitterness in your heart, but it also means that you are, are to promote a culture of life and love. Do not commit adultery. It means you also you watch out for lust and twisting sex into an idol, but it also means that you promote a heart of faithfulness and purity. Likewise with stealing. And here again we come to a new commandment, and this commandment teaches us to speak truth. We're going to read chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, and we remember that this is God's Word written. It's the only infallible rule for faith and practice. Hear God's Word. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray now that you, the God who speaks and speaks with truth, would make it so that your people would have ears to hear precisely what you say to us. We ask more than that, that you would be willing, once again, to wield in your hand a sinful, crooked stick like me, uh, to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus. Uh, Show us the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. It was uh, during my freshman year in high school that I received a a phone call from an upperclassman at the school. Uh, May I speak to Eric? Yes, this is Eric. Eric, this is Rudy Gravel. 
So with a long pause, I tried to think, who is Rudy Gravel? And I worked through my brain, and I came up with two possibilities of who Rudy was. And both of the characters that I came up with had uh, kind of shaggy, blondish hair. Both of them had thick, full beards for high school. They had uh, combat boots. Both of them wore trench coats. Both of them wore black trench coats. And so I said, hey, Rudy. Well, Eric, I heard that you called me a hairy, ugly loser. Mm, Rudy, that doesn't sound like something that I'd say. But where did you hear that from? Well, that doesn't matter. But if I find out that you said it, I'm going to hurt you. Click. And Rudy hung up the phone. And I sat there and I thought, why would Rudy think that I said that about him? And then I remembered Jason and Danny. The last time I heard the name Rudy Gravel was when Jason and Danny, two boys that didn't really like me, came up to me and said, hey, do you know who Rudy Gravel is? And I said, hmm, let me think about it. Uh, Is he kind of tall and does he have kind of blondish long hair? Yes. Oh, yes, that's precisely Rudy Gravel. Two weeks later, I get a phone call from Rudy accusing me of calling him a hairy, ugly loser. They said it in hopes to get me hurt. And so Danny and Jason had taken my words, and does he have longish blonde hair was converted into Rudy is a hairy, ugly loser. So what's the moral of the story? Well, the moral of the story is do not bear false witness against your neighbor, especially if your neighbor is me. And the possible executioner is one who wears a long black trench coat. I sit at my desk, it's so easy to find stories from my own life where someone has sinned against me. And then the longer I sit at these studies... I realize that my biggest problem is not the way that others have sinned against me. It's the way that I have violated these commandments in very real ways. Here's a commandment that is so easy to recognize in someone else. And it is so hard to see in my own life. The ninth commandment is, is so much more than just don't lie. It is a, it's a heart-level command. You remember Jesus' words in Matthew 12 where he says, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. James chapter 3, verse 6, the tongue is a fire. It's a world of unrighteousness. The tongue stains the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell itself. James goes on to say we can tame animals, we can tame birds, no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. It's not a light comment. It's a very intense comment. The ninth commandment forbids lying, but it also forbids the deeper heart level matters. And so here's the point of our text. In all your words, hold firmly to the truth. Now, we're going to study the ninth commandment in context and then in practice. 
and then thirdly, in Christ. So we start in context. So at the surface level, here's a commandment that seems to be a, a charge to testify to the truth when you are in the midst of a trial. One Old Testament scholar reminds us that a decent society requires a reliable court system, and the, the, the court system's reliability is contingent on the people of that society being honest people. Hence, you shall not bear a false witness against your neighbor. A false witness is a lying witness. It is one who testifies falsely against a person who's been accused of a crime. And so in a trial, a false testimony, lying about what you've seen or heard, either leads to punishment for a person who is innocent, or it can also likewise lead to someone who is guilty going free. Honesty matters. And it matters because someone's life may depend on it. And so obviously in the context of the Ten Commandments and even in the book of Exodus, this is spoken to the neighbor and, and we recognize that usually means the covenant people of God. This is national Israel. But you also remember that Jesus in Luke chapter 10 goes on when he's asked the question, who's my neighbor? He tells a story. It's a parable and you know of it as the Good Samaritan. And what's the point of that? Everyone you come in contact with is your neighbor. Growing up in the American justice system, you and I are trained to think in ways that are actually historically unique. In this country, those who are brought to trial are to be considered by the jury innocent until they are proven guilty. And so when jury selection takes place before a trial, a defense attorney can rightly stand in front of those potential jurors and he can say, what do I need to do to make sure that you know that my client is innocent? What's the answer to that question? Have you been getting to think through your mind? Well, prove to me that he or she wasn't there at the scene of the crime. Uh, give to me an alibi that tells me that they were not there. Are there others who can vouch for where that person was just to, to prove that they weren't there? But you see that the answer to the question, what do I need to do to make sure you know my client is innocent? The answer in our system is nothing. Because the burden of proof for your client to be found guilty entirely rests on the prosecution who come and bring forth facts to prove without any reasonable doubt that man is guilty. You see, in our country, when the burden of proof lies in the prosecution, it is because a person is declared innocent first, and then they are declared guilty only if the trial proves it that way. Where did that system come from? Like, why is that the way it works in this country? Because it's entirely patterned on the Old Testament system of justice. This commandment, in fact, all of the effects that will grow out of this commandment into national Israel are completely unique in the ancient world. In the surrounding pagan nations, including Egypt and everywhere else, a person was first presumed guilty until proven innocent. More than that, the testimony of one single person was enough to convict you. But in Israel, among God's people, this commandment became what you might call the, the starting point from which an entirely just society was to be built on earth. 
And it starts with the issue of truth. Will my people speak truth to one another and about one another? It's the starting point, but it's also the linchpin that holds the entire justice system together. Beyond that, in national Israel, there was no such thing as as vigilante justice. Any person who was thought to have committed a crime had to be brought before a jury of elders. And those elders would decide the guilt or innocence. But they would not simply listen to one witness. Deuteronomy 19.15, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. You see, God was building into the fabric of this nation a way to avoid injustice. And here, to avoid false convictions. More than that, in this system of justice, the witness was himself the accuser. Why? Why is the witness also the accuser? Because if you report what you know, then you also must contribute to the fight against injustice, to the, to the destruction of evil, to the promotion of stability and harmony in a society. That is, if your words are true. That's why Deuteronomy chapter 17 verse 7 says in the cases of the death penalty, the witness was required to be the same one who was the first one to pick up the stone and he would be the first one to cast that first stone. If you are so certain of what you saw, are you certain enough to throw the first stone to put this person to death? You see, it was meant to reduce false accusations. It was meant to limit the concept of perjury. So here's a whole system, which is unique. Why? Why did God do this in the nation of Israel? Well, he did it because the Lord was hoping to communicate two very important aspects of his character. You are children of a God who tells the truth. Therefore, reflecting his image, you also must be those who tell the truth. You're children of a God who values justice. Therefore, reflecting his image, you must be those who value justice. As God will not let the guilty go unpunished, likewise, you are not to let the guilty go unpunished. But you see, don't you, that there was a missional purpose even in the ninth commandment. That the surrounding nations would see and recognize that the God of Israel is a unique God. Here is a God of truth and justice. Here is a God whose character is meant to reflect beautifully in the pagan world. So that those outside would know. Well, Yahweh is different. He is true. And all your words hold firmly to the truth. That's the commandment in context. Now let's examine the commandment in practice. Obviously, this commandment forbids the worst kind of lie. That is one that sends an innocent person to be punished for a crime that they didn't commit. But as we learned last week and throughout this study, each commandment also forbids what you and I might think of as the the lesser sins that come underneath this worst case scenario. It's also really in that sense revealing the root causes of the worst case scenario sins as hatred does with murder, as lust does to adultery, as greed does to theft. The ninth commandment forbids every form of dishonesty or falsehood. 
And so I want you to think at this point in terms of violations and applications. Violations, what does it mean to mishandle the truth? And then under applications, how can I promote truth? So violations. One pastor said it is not just about the false testimony that people give in court, but the lies that they tell their neighbor over the backyard fence and the rumors that they whisper between the pews of the church. Now, why is this a big deal? Well, you remember the Eighth Commandment instructs us not to steal. But then when it comes to stealing, in almost every case, what is stolen can quite often be returned. What's lost is restored. But that's not the case when someone else's reputation has been stolen. Martin Luther said reputation is quickly stolen, but not quickly returned. And we know that to be the truth in real life, don't we? Because your reputation is attached to your name. And so it's not just in a courtroom that that name matters. Any lie that is spoken about you has has the potential of devastating effects. Anytime a a word is spoken without all of the facts, or anytime someone says something and twists the truth for the purpose of bringing harm to that other person, it's it's a direct violation of the ninth commandment. Now, uh, The Heidelberg Catechism, which we used earlier in the service, was written uh, about 80 years before the Westminster Confession of Faith. And then question 112, it says, I must not give false testimony against anyone. I wonder if you ever retell a story in a way that slightly slants the story in your favor so that you look good in the end and the other person looks bad? Do you ever tell an account and, and amplify what someone did towards you so that you get to walk away looking like an innocent victim who quietly kept his or her mouth shut while that mean person just took advantage of me? Certainly it's possible. But do you ever overstate something for the sake of the effect? Deep down, what you're looking for is sympathy in the midst of your pain. But what you're doing is overstating the other person's cruelty and presuming on it. I wish you would have seen the way she looked at me. I wish you would have seen the way she ignored me. Or when you presume you know someone else's motives as if you can perceive what is behind every intention or every glance or every look. She was sitting there so smugly as if she's better than me. She was just trying to exclude me. Or do you ever say things like, I don't like him. He's so cocky or arrogant. He was looking at me as if I'm trash. Is what you're saying true? In other words, do you really know what that look means? Do you really know the motives behind another person's actions? Some of you might think of yourself as fairly intuitive. Perhaps you feel yourself fairly certain on how you read certain situations. And that may be okay. You may feel that you're reading something accurately. But if you pass along your own interpretation of something which is simply your interpretation as if it is fact 
to tear down another person, you might be giving false testimony. Heidelberg Catechism goes on to say, I am not to twist someone else's words, which comes up so easily in the course of any conflict, doesn't it? And then he said to me, and then I said back to him, can you believe he said that to me? And in the end, when I summarize whatever exchange it was, I look like gold. And he or she looks exactly like the wretch that I want you to think that they are. How deceitful. How deceitful we are. How deceitful I am. And I suspect, don't you, that in the moment there is the presence of the Holy Spirit in God's people reminding you and reminding me, I think I might be slightly twisting this story. Perhaps you know that you're doing it. But I like my story to end this way. I want to make sure that I really do get to take them down a rung or two. I want to make sure that they feel that everyone else reads them the way I read them. When you notice that you're twisting someone else's words, why don't you stop? What is it that makes it impossible to stop? Why, why is it that you're so unwilling to backtrack? It's because you would look bad in the moment. And you're deeply afraid of saying, wait a second, I think I'm overstating this. I dare not jeopardize the intended purpose of gaining allies even as I destroy my enemy just because of the altar of honesty. Question 112 also says, I am not to gossip or slander nor condemn or join in condemning anyone else rashly or unheard. Now, gossip can look two different ways. Gossip can be taking true information about another person into the wrong place. Hey, did you hear he got an F on his paper? As if it's anyone else's business that he got an F on his paper? Gossip can also be taking false information about another person into any place. He's married. I'm pretty sure he's got a girlfriend somewhere. I mean, I haven't seen it, but I'm pretty sure. Behind both of those lurks the power to destroy the reputation of another person. And the strange thing about gossip and rumor and telling tales about other people is that even as it destroys the reputation of another person, it gives you the feeling of building or strengthening a friendship with whomever you share it. Oftentimes, people who were total enemies begin to feel close by sharing secrets and rumors about some common enemy. And the reason that is so appealing is the same reason that it's so destructive. The person who is being spoken of has no voice in the charges that are raised. She can't defend herself. She can't clarify the information or help you understand the nuance of what happened. She can't even correct what you heard. She can't defend herself against your interpretation of the events. She's not there. That's why it makes you feel powerful. And that's why your words are so 
destructive. How often we condemn other people or we join in condemning them just because we read something on social media or you hear something that sounds pretty damning. And perhaps the more severe it sounds, the more quickly we are to pass it along and handle the facts loosely. Like the retweet. 4,000 people retweet this accusation against that person. Later in the day, wait, there's a correction. Those facts were incorrect. Well, then it's only retweeted 200 times. And so there is no way to fix what has gone out. In practice, these are some of the violations. How do we mishandle the truth? Now, let's talk about applications. How can I guard and promote the truth? If the tongue really is what James says, as Scripture says, a fire, a world of unrighteousness, which stains the whole body, the restless evil, full of deadly poison, perhaps the first way to apply this Scripture is to simply slow down, and engage my brain and my heart before I speak. Philip Ryken offers three questions that I think are really helpful to help me engage my brain and my heart before I speak. Number one, he says, is what I'm about to say true? Number two, if so, does it really need to be said to this person in this conversation? And then number three, would I say it this way? If the person was here to listen, you guard and promote truth by what you say, but also by what you're willing to listen to. I mean, I suspect there are some people who would, who would not dare be willing to pass along gossip, but they will happily listen if it comes their way. Uh, the, the old Puritan Thomas Watson said, he that raises a slander carries the devil on his tongue. He that receives it carries the devil in his ear. I wonder if you're learning to watch what you say, what you're willing to listen to. Is your heart tender enough to the Holy Spirit that when you know you are about to hear something that would be a delectable morsel to taste or hear, are you willing to say, you know what, I know this is awkward, maybe we should stop. I think we might be walking towards gossip. The ninth commandment forbids lying, but it also forbids, as someone says, it also is a command to love the truth, to be honest and faithful, and to guard and advance the good name of another person, your neighbor. I wonder if you love the truth. Do you seek to guard and advance the name of another person? How much do you want people to speak the truth about you? To that degree, you must desire to speak the truth about them. How much do you want your your own reputation protected? To that degree, you must be desirous of protecting the reputation of others. How much do you want people to give you the benefit of the doubt, even when things do not look very good for you? To that degree... You must extend the benefit of the doubt until all the facts are known. 
And all your words hold firmly to the truth. We've seen the commandment in context, the commandment in practice. We're going to close with the commandment in Christ. And so as we close in this point, I want to give you uh, what I would call three touch points to help you understand the commandment through the lens of Christ. The first is a fact. The second is a comfort. The third is a calling. So we start with a fact. And the fact is this. Truth comes from God. Lies come from Satan. Psalm 119, verse 160, the sum of your word, O Lord, is truth. When praying for God's people, Jesus prays in John chapter 17, 17, your word, Lord, is truth. Romans chapter 3, verse 4, God is true, though everyone else were a liar. Likewise, in John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus says that Satan is a liar and he's the father of lies. And so the fact is that if truth comes from God and lies come from Satan, then everyone in the entire world, no matter who you are, is either listening or speaking from one source or the other. The voice of truth or the voice of lies. Secondly, a comfort. The Bible says that Satan is an accuser, that he seeks to condemn you. Satan's name actually means accuser. So we encounter him in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. It is said that he who is called the accuser accuses the brothers. And he accuses them day and night before God. So Satan stands to bear witness against you. He testifies against you toward God and then against you toward yourself. Like, why do you think that God could possibly love you? I mean, you're the biggest gossip that anyone knows. You slander more than anybody. You know the way you talk. And Satan says, you don't love the truth. You hate the truth. Look at your track record. Wait, Eric, I thought you said this was going to be a comfort. Yes. Because even as Satan testifies against you, Jesus testifies on your behalf. John opens his gospel letter by telling us that the divine wisdom of God, the divine truth of God took on flesh and blood, and that truth is Christ. John 1.14, we saw the glory of God in the person of Christ, and the Lord Jesus is one who is full of both grace and truth. There's a terrifying vision in Zechariah chapter 3. It's a courtroom scene. Spoken of the people who came back from exile, having been punished for their sins, they came back. They're trying to reestablish the nation of Israel. And in this vision, it's a courtroom scene. And Joshua, who was the high priest at the time, stands. It's his job to make atonement before God for the sins of God's people. But that Joshua, in this vision, stands before the throne of God. And he's clothed in filthy garments Joshua is literally wearing excrement on his body. And there is Satan standing at Joshua's right hand, accusing him before the Lord. And the reader would immediately wonder, wait a second, if the high priest is this filthy, who is going to make atonement for God's people? 
It's a sermon about false witness. But what if in the courtroom of God, the accusations of Satan really are true? Like, what if he's right? In response to the accusations, Zechariah chapter 3, the Lord rebukes Satan. He shuts his mouth. And then he removes the filthy garments from Joshua. He takes away his iniquity and he clothes them with these pure vestments. The point? Oh, if the high priest is clean, then God's people are made clean. And Satan's accusations, though they may be true, have no place to land. Far more important than who stands at your right hand making accusations is the one who sits at God's right hand making intercession. Romans chapter 8 verse 34, Christ Jesus is the one who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Here's a command which cries out for a faithful witness. And Jesus is your faithful witness against the charges of Satan. Three touch points to understand the ninth commandment through the lens of Christ. The fact, the comfort, we close with the calling. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus says, no one has to bear witness about me. My own words, my own actions testify that I am truth. Romans, I mean, excuse me, Revelation chapter 1. Jesus calls himself the faithful witness. That is the one who speaks truth. And you and I have been redeemed from the lies of the evil one by this faithful witness. The one great truth teller, Jesus Christ. In him, you and I have begun to learn the language of truth. We've begun to have ears to hear the language of truth. Is that just simply so we can be saved from our sins? Is that all of it? Or is this witness meant to be a starting point, a sort of calling for you and me? That's exactly what it is. Acts chapter 1, the very last thing that Jesus says to his disciples before he ascends into heaven is this. It's a kind of reapplication of the ninth commandment. He said, once the Holy Spirit comes upon you, then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Do you see? You, you are children of a truth-telling God. You are benefactors of a faithful witness who is Christ. And all your words hold firmly to the truth so that you too may testify of Christ, the one who has already borne witness for you. Oh God, help us to be those who speak and live and listen and hear the truth. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We pray for the ministry of your spirit so that truly the things that we have heard would land deeply in our hearts, that you would apply them fully to us, 
that we who have been made to love the truth might likewise learn to speak the truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing